This is the Author Archive podcast. I'm David Freeman. In this episode, I'm talking to Lisa St. Aubin de Turan. Now, many men have fallen in love with Lisa and married her. And the very first time she married, she was a teenager. She tells that and other stories in this book, Memory Maps. It's all about looking over her shoulder. So writing about what's gone on in the past, looking at the past, did she enjoy that? It was mostly enjoyable, sometimes painful, but for me, at the time that I wrote the book, it was a very necessary trip to take because I'd come to a point in my life when I was about to literally start over and I needed to get rid of all the old luggage, as it were, and get it in place. But hang on a minute, this is a, this is a book about continually starting over. I mean, you seem to do it on a serial basis. Yeah, I'm a serial starter over. Yep. Because this goes back to the story, which probably quite a few people know anyway, but you as a teenager being benignly stalked by this quiet bloke. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're in central London now, and it wasn't that far away. It was in Clapham. It was, was in it? Clapham, yeah, in Clapham. So I was stalked by this much older Venezuelan quiet man. And the only thing that he used to say, he had a little dictionary, and he used to say in a very loud voice, he wasn't quiet when he spoke, he used to say, will you marry me or marry me? And I was very shy, and I found this really embarrassing because I'd be at a bus stop and there was this sort of foreigner saying, marry me. And uh, in the end, I, after some months, just to keep him quiet, I, I got my little dictionary and I said, maybe later, maybe later. And I think that was a mistake because I should have just stuck with no. How old were you? 16. And you grew up in a family of, of females, and your mother had mm. been married four times. Yep. So what was the kind of familiar reaction to you being serially proposed to and thinking, part of you, think, well, well, I just might? My mother was horrified at the thought of my marrying at all. You know, if I'd been 16 or 36, she would have not been happy about it because marriage in our family has not been a good experience. But she liked this particular person because he was such a gentleman and he was so handsome and so charming. And it was the 60s when a lot of people were not behaving in a particularly gentlemanly way with their future mother-in-laws. So she thought he was very old school and sweet, but she didn't want me to marry him. That was... How old was he? He was 36, but he had been a political prisoner in Venezuela for some years, so he looked about 60. So, were you physically drawn to this man? No, not at first, no. But he was very persistent. And, you know, Clapham now has changed a great deal, but Clapham then was not a nice place to live, and I really wanted to get out of Clapham. He kept saying, let's go to Italy, let's go to Italy. And I was obsessed with the idea of Italy. And if he hadn't said Italy, I don't think I would have married him. I could have resisted the temptation but he said if you don't marry me I will die and I'd never met a Latin person before I didn't realize that's what they all say you see so I thought god you know this is a terrible responsibility to cause the death of this rather charming stranger so you did it but you end up in Italy and this guy who's 30 odd but looks 60 odd um, he can't even do the simple thing like feed you no he came from a very rarefied 
environment. He'd been very privileged in Venezuela, and so he couldn't actually feed himself. He was one of those people who never does anything for themselves. You were in Bologna, weren't you? We were mostly in Bologna, yeah. Um, living in style? I mean... Our first little bit of time in Italy was in wonderful style and we lived in a very grand hotel in Rome for some months and then we moved to an appalling slum in Milan uh, with no plumbing and no bathroom and it was really horrible and then in Bologna we had a very funky sweet apartment but the stylish you know to live in it was not it was boiling hot in summer and freezing in winter and there was no food and it was really pretty distressing but at that age um, I was really more interested in reading and um, daydreaming I didn't see much of what was going on around me I felt hungry that's the, my main memory of living in Bologna is just hungry because you actually right at the very beginning you've been a, a, a clever kid mm. um, maybe quiet but you were reading George Eliot when you were you know, scarcely at school weren't you? yeah I was a very early reader and I had grown up with my father who was a university professor and writer you know saying oh my daughter's a child prodigy and my mother thought you know I was the most wonderful thing that had ever happened so I thought of myself as being very know-it-all and then I met these Venezuelans my husband's friends who looked at me and thought you ignorant twerp you know you know nothing and that was a real shock to me actually a very good shock in the long run because it made me um, get out of myself and uh, read and study to this day, I feel like an ignorant twerp, and I always remember my friend Otto you know, just looks at me and I think, okay, yeah, okay, I could do better, I could do more. Okay. But, but so when you're hungry in Bologna, mm. did you find solace again in books as you had as a kid? Yes, I did, partly, but I wanted that other solace of a sort of enormous panini. You know, I just wanted some food as well. So I read a lot in Bologna, I did read a lot, but I was... You know, when you actually feel hungry and you haven't eaten for some days and you have an appetite as big as mine, because I eat like a horse, and, you know, it was the main thing was I want to eat. And my main problem with my husband was that he was not feeding me. <laughs> it, was, it wasn't so much, you know, why have you married me and brought me to this terrible poverty and you are so weird and what's going on? It's like, why don't you feed me? That's what did I had he, against him. Did he have a, an answer? No, he never bothered with any of that, you know, sort of discussions and things like that. They were all beyond him. So I could say anything to him and he just wasn't into rising to a reply or just, it was a strange sort of person. So when you went to stay at the, the Hacienda, which you've written uh, yeah. about yeah. before, uh, did you go there thinking, oh, at least if I go there, I'll get fed? No, I went there, no, it was way more than that. I went there thinking that there was, I had heard about this Hacienda and it was huge and it was wonderful and fantastic and it was you know not only would I get fed but I would live in this gorgeous mansion and have all this uh, you know, luxury around me because everybody all his friends and family and people had told me about this hacienda so I knew when I went to the hacienda it was going to be just like opening you know a country life magazine and going into the most gorgeous place and just living there so that that's what I was expecting and what did you find what I found was an incredibly beautiful landscape. That was true. And, you know, there were lots of trees and there were lots of people there who were all very um, feudally attached to my husband. But I lived for the first part of the time that I lived in a, a sort of mud hut 
with a mud floor and no windows and a corrugated iron roof with holes in it and you know there's a rainy season when the rain just gushes in and no food at all there was no food that was partly because I was so stupid you know I think now if I were out there now that wouldn't happen to me because I was 18 when I arrived on the hacienda and my husband turned out to have, and I think the lesson of this story is don't marry strangers you meet on the street in Clapham, but he turned out to be very seriously schizophrenic and he went into a schizophrenic episode in which he had no idea who I was. So we arrived on the hacienda, I was his wife, this, the new doña of the estate, and he didn't know who I was and he just left. And he left me in this kind of mud house in the middle of nowhere by the edge of a river with the beagle dogs that I'd brought from England. And uh, yeah, after a few days, I was actually nibbling at their dog food because there was nothing there for me to eat. And I didn't know how to get, there was no telephone, there was no transport, there was nothing. I was just stuck there. But now I realise with hindsight, you know, if that happened to somebody a little bit older and less shy and less stupid than I was then, you know, you'd, you'd get up and go. Weren't there other people there? Servants or...? No. When I arrived on the hacienda, uh, nobody spoke to me, with the exception of the foreman, who occasionally came down, but nobody spoke to me because I wasn't a member of the family by a blood link. He had to be linked by blood to become a member of this Tehran family. And because I wasn't one of them, they'd been marrying cousin to cousin for 400 years, and also mixing with all the peasant families around. They were all linked by blood and I wasn't, so nobody spoke to me. It was literally as I was invisible. I could walk into a whole gathering of people and they stopped when I arrived and sort of reanimated as I went past. And nobody would answer questions, speak to me, say hello. But that's the beginning. In this mm. book you say, if only da da da, I'd still be there. Mm -hmm. I loved the hacienda and I would have stayed on the hacienda for my entire life, I think, if my husband had done the decent thing and, um, quite frankly, died. Because all his family died very young through having been into marrying for 400 years. And I spent seven years on the hacienda and I spent all my time with the uh, 52 families of peasant workers and we had that hacienda up and running and I loved it there but it wasn't mine and so for the last sort of three years that I was there I was waiting to see if he was going to just sort of keel over with a heart failure like the rest of the family always did by the time they were 40 and by that time he was 40. But he didn't? Mm -mm. And I'm glad I didn't wait because he's still there. <laughs> Because one of the main things that um, this hacienda produced was avocados. Avocados. Yeah, so they're presumably avocados to eat at the right time. Yeah, but you know, avocados only ripen twice a year. You have ripe avocados, depending on the variety. So twice a year there were avocados. At the time when I arrived, there were no avocados. But they are good for hearts, aren't they? They're good for hearts, yeah. So maybe that's why he's still there. Maybe, maybe, yeah. I mean, the, the way you write about his mental condition it, it's you're actually very kind to him and very sort of understanding in your writing and later on you go a bit whoopsie as well don't you i think that it's true to say that if you live with somebody who is insane in some of that rubs off on on the carer some of that rubs off on the person who's there and i was very aware of the fact that 
uh, I had to be away from that madness or it, uh, it, would, it was just contagious, yeah. But I do, when I write about my first husband, I, I suppose that in some ways I am kind to him because I saw that he was somebody who, you know, deep down was a very decent person. He really was. He tried to do something which he didn't need to do. He was very wealthy, he was very privileged, and he tried to improve the conditions of the peasant workers and the people in Venezuela, and he joined this revolutionary movement. And he'd been very severely mistreated and tortured, and that had completely unhinged him. And so I could see why he was the way he was, and I could imagine how he had been before. And it seemed to me that, you know, he was, he was a decent chap. As long as he didn't get too close, you know. <laughs> um, there's a bit where, are you back in Italy? And you seem to spend a lot of time finding solace travelling on a train. Yep, I've, I've often found solace on a train. I've liked trains since I was a child, when I was little, and that's not good to bring up the subject of truancy now because trying to crack down on it but I, I was a big-time truanter when I was a child and so didn't go to school much at all and I used to travel by train up and down the track to Brighton when I was a little girl and then I just developed a, a love of trains really from probably those early school days my school days spent on the track and I do travel by train, by choice, whenever I can. If I could choose plane, train, I'll go train. Sometimes there isn't time to do that. But uh, when I lived in Italy, for instance, and we were very poor, um, one of my husband's friends, who was one of those sort of dodgy, little bit woo, yeah, had um, free train tickets from Milan to Paris. And so we didn't have any money and we didn't have any food, but we could travel from Milan to Paris and back again for free with this free train tickets, we just had to fill in the date and we'd take the train. And we spent a lot of time, months actually, just travelling up and down the line. Months? Passing the time, yeah. Done that journey hundreds of times over the years. That's Lisa St. Aubin de Turan. I was talking to her about her book called Memory Maps, a woman who has lived life to the full. This is the Author Archive podcast. I'm David Freeman.